Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War. Merry early Christmas to all of you. I won't be putting out an episode in two weeks, which is between New Year's and Christmas Day, so that's just how it is. I want to take a break for the week. Hope you guys are okay with that. But with the holiday out of the way, let's get started. So last time I mentioned Gustav Adolphus. I said he brought major changes to military strategy, tactics... He brought changes to his military. So this week, I'm going to cover that more in detail. The main aspect that is going to be covered today as a bigger picture is him centralizing power, which he did last time, and creating a professional army. For those of you who don't know, a professional army is generally defined as a military where people are paid a salary, where they serve the military all year round, which usually lasts a couple of years at minimum. Most militaries past the 18th century are pretty much professional militaries, at least in the West. Normally, in this time period, it was either mercenaries, which I covered before, or men would be called upon when a campaign was going on, so they'd be conscripted into an army, serve for a set period of time, and then go back home. Usually, you know, if they're farmers, they have to farm... But the Thirty Years' War created issues because these men would be called on a campaign for years at a time, which meant that fields would go unplowed, people wouldn't be working their job, like if you were a skilled laborer, and this would create food issue, labor issues, tax issues. And a professional army also differs from mercenaries in that mercenaries will serve anyone who pays them. They don't have any loyalty to any particular country necessarily. Some of them might be more loyal to one country or another or, you know, give a cheaper rate, etc. But mercenaries will generally work for anyone who pays them. A professional army, however, is only made up of recruits from the country that its origin is. So again, the British army would only have British people in the army. Maybe some foreign volunteers could come in, but they weren't mercenaries in the same way of being able to float around and hire to other countries. Granted, I will say, this wasn't the first time this army was used in Europe. It would happen in spurts, basically. A good example is the Byzantine retinue system, which was a professional army where they'd have a core of professional troops that would be augmented by more conscripted forces. The Ottomans also had a professional army at this time, but again, which was supplemented by local forces and more militia-based forces. One of the most famous examples before this time period was the Roman legions, which very famous for being a professional army, and you actually just served in there for 20 years? Somewhere, like late teens, early 20, 20s for the years you had to serve in there. But for our case here, the main person Gustavus Adolphus studied was Maurice of Nassau. Maurice of Nassau was a 17th century Dutch prince of the House of Orange, who brought up the idea of creating a professional army for the Dutch and implemented it. It was more of a militia-based system than what Gustavus did, but... The issue they had was the lack of resources in comparison to Spain, so they had to go with a cheaper option that did somewhat match the Spanish, because they couldn't reliably hire mercenaries for long periods of time. They also had to have higher quality troops in comparison to Spain, because Spain had the resources because, you know, the gold from the Americas was coming in. To create a professional army... Gustavus had to centralize his military. I covered some of the centralization last time with putting all the politically important people in Stockholm, that sort of deal. But the important part of the military aspect of it was the increasing documentation of the country, which is censuses, tax records, all that sort of thing. This new record keeping allowed him to keep track of his citizens for conscription and other military needs. He did use a version of conscription, but it was a bit different or modified compared to the older model. It worked much more like modern military, which is you were called upon to service, and then you go into train, and then you'd be put out. So you'd be called ahead of time. You weren't necessarily being called the day of and then being sent to the front line. 
This actually created a effect of creating more patriotism within Sweden, which had an increase in morale and, well, patriotism. There was an increased drive to protect the country due to the people in the military serving there as a job, not just a yearly or seasonal thing. Yearly or seasonal thing. This would have a long-reaching effort into making troops better quality, combined with increased training discipline, which I will cover later. It did take a while for the nobility to get on board, as they needed incentives to really want to do this. It eventually grew to become a sign of increased status, as it was seen as part of the civil service, both on the commoner and nobility front. Granted, Gustavus would still have trouble with keeping up his cavalry numbers from the nobility, even with this increase in patriotism. And keep in mind that this whole episode, there is a debate in how much Gustavus Adolphus came up with his reforms, as in, was it him who came up with it, or was it some subordinate that he just got credit for later? The sources, it's hard, it's a debate, and I'm on the front that he was a major part of it, That, but he may have taken some credit from other people, but their names aren't really listed as far as I can find, so I'll leave that to you guys to decide. But the first topic we're going to cover is this new army. This new army rose out of Gustavus's father's failure against Russia and looking at the Dutch against the Spanish. The model that his father used was the older system of conscription and they lacked training, which the other side did too, but Sweden was again caught in the three-way war or three-front war which drained them. So Gustavus focused on two things, training and discipline. One of the key things he started out was the nobility, even when they grumbled, would still have to follow the same rules all the common soldiers did. So everyone would be punished the same, at least in theory. Again, there probably was things that happened that weren't exactly following the rules or nobility got away with more than a common soldier did, but at least in theory, the nobility had to keep to the rules the way the common soldiers did. This created a sense of unity among the soldiers because they all knew they were following the same code. So there wasn't a sense of the nobility got punished one way and we got punished another, which would do good for a professional army to have unity and would create a stronger sense of purpose. Savas also implemented a few other things into this army, which were improved skills and maneuvering on the battlefields, intelligent leadership, loyalty to the unit, and discipline. Again, intelligent leadership is obvious, with good leadership being the army was better and can win more battles, and I will go over that in a little more detail after this. Well, not after this, but in a little bit. Improving skills and the ability to maneuver on the battlefields meant that a unit in the Swedish army could outfight and outmaneuver their enemy due to their training right out the gate, versus men having to learn from experience over time, which meant doubly, which is training and experience. For a more specific example, the combat between mass units was won by units whose morale held out the longest, so a unit with high discipline and morale was less likely to break, which a unit breaking can eventually cause a rout, which is one unit breaks and then somebody else sees them and they start panicking and they break and it creates a cascade effect, which is what happened a lot with the Protestants during the early part of the war. And on the loyalty front, loyalty to a unit is a common thing you find in pretty much any professional army, which is why you have soldiers saying like, oh, I'm proud to be part of this division or this regiment, etc. It's a way to unite soldiers. Soldiers loyal to their comrades and friends are less willing to desert and abandon them, though this would still happen, people are people, but they're less likely to flee. And the last part, which was discipline, came from the fact that soldiers didn't have to worry about getting back to their farms, so they could focus on training, working on discipline, self-control, and working as a unit. This discipline was also supplemented by various punishments for breaking that. Like, he that forces any woman to abuse her, the matter be proved, he shall die for it. Which meant, again, if, if there was raping pillaging going on and they're found doing that to women or anybody else, they could be punished. 
or they could be, they would be punished. He who ever flings away his arms, either in the field or otherwhere, being forced to make the street clean until they redeem themselves by some worthy exploit doing. And other things like, no soldier shall pillage anything from our subjects upon any march, strength or leaguer, or otherwise howsoever, upon pain of death. Which meant that as long as you were in friendly territory, there would be no pillaging, which could extend to allies as well. So if Gustav Adolfus made German allies, they would be immune to this pillaging. It would happen, but the fact is, it was discouraged. These punishments would hopefully reduce the amount of cruel things being done by his troops, although that wouldn't necessarily happen in terms of completely. There would always be people doing things or randomly burning someone's house down, pillaging someone's house, etc. He actually required mercenaries to follow this code of conduct when they were in his service, which showed his ability to maintain discipline in his army. So now, we're going to get to our more doctrinal changes. Well, the first thing was the creation of officers as we know them. Officers were not only trained like regular troops, but they got trained in logistics, maps, different types of combat, and more theoretical stuff so they could act like leaders on the battlefields. Not to the extent that they are today, but it was the start of this officer corps. This was an evolution of things suggested by Maurice of Nassau and his military. The idea was this form of officer could function on the battlefield even if they lost communication with the next person above them, or the chain of command in general. So if they lost communication, but it, but they knew sort of what they were supposed to be doing, they could act independently and try to make their way back to command. Officers of an older method would have a harder time with that. The officers, in turn, however, were held to higher standards, and in theory, soldiers would not be forced to follow orders that were unlawful or inhumane, which inhumane is not the same as we call it nowadays, but, you know, if someone's asking you to do something against a Swedish, a soldier could say no. I know there's a whole debate on how much you could do that, even nowadays with that, but in theory, the soldier had the ability to say, no, this order was unlawful or cruel or inhumane. This had the effect of keeping officers from abusing their authority as much, but it would still happen. Another thing to note is that many officers weren't actually nobility, but people who showed capability and promise. So people who were commoners could find their way into officerhood. So the officer corps wasn't just a collection of nobility in the army. They were a cohesive unit that held this new professional army together. And they were a key aspect of maintaining discipline and cohesion. This officer class would be an important part of the success of the Swedish, especially initially. The next thing he changed was the makeup of military formations, which by that means not like a parade formation, but how a unit fought. One of the important things he changed was the standardization of his units. This focused on the regiment, which was made up of either two squadrons of cavalry or eight companies of infantry. Even if the unit wasn't full, so even if the unit wasn't full, a commander could roughly guess how many men were in his army just by looking at his units, and even if he couldn't guess numbers, he could always guess who was in his unit and what his capabilities were. And a regiment could then be combined into larger units, which would eventually make up an army. So I think regiments become part of a brigade, and that can turn an army, and they didn't have divisions back then, but what we would call divisions... That sort of thing. He then also changed the makeup of infantry formations. A unit was really made up of two things, at least on the infantry front. Firearm troops and pikemen of some sort, or polearm troops is another way to say it. Usually the muskets were there to weaken the enemy before the polearm troops charged into combat, which the goal was the firearm troops would shock the enemy formations before the pikemen would charge in. The downside of these formations, like the tertio, was that it was very inflexible, and once you began advancing and charging, it was hard to retreat while maintaining the formation. It was also hard to show individual initiative in these mass formation combats due to their ability, to, due to their inability to flank on a wide scale or as an individual unit. Gustavus changed it up by increasing the amount of gunners in the formations while decreasing the amount of pikemen or polearm troops. This gave them greater firepower, which turned 
the focus more to gunpowder weapons. And also they changed fire from continuous fire to volley fire, in which a row of men would fire at a time, and the next row would fire, and the next row, and by the time however many rows would pass, by the time the first row was done reloading, they'd be ready to fire again. So you can keep mass fire, especially in the age of inaccurate weaponry. These formations were more flexible and mobile, more easily able to hit flank the enemy and keep them suppressed. And add on to this the officer system, and you have a faster, more mobile formation that can move and adapt faster than the older doctrine. And it was heavily inspired by the Roman system of the legion before they became the professional legion that we know, which Gustavus, again, read up on the Roman military and was inspired by that. This new army was an important part of Swedish dominance, but it wasn't the only thing that was important. The next major thing he did was modify artillery. The important thing he did was he modified artillery in that he made it shorter and lightened the carriages of the artillery, which meant they were able to maneuver on the battlefield much more quickly. So you can move a carriage, set up a gun battery, and if the battle moved or you need to retreat and pull back, they can pull back. It was still limited by the terrain and technology of the time, but this was still better than the enemy, who who was slower, had a hard time moving, and once the battery set up, it was hard to change it out in the middle of the battlefield. He also standardized his guns. He created three categories of artillery, which was 3-pounders, 12-pounders, and 24-pounders, which was all based on the weight of the shot that was used. This let him create artillery regiments, which could now be trained in a standardized method, because they knew the exact guns they had, they knew the rough shape of the shell they were using, so they could get good at what they were good for. So, for example, a 24-pounder wasn't necessarily on the battlefield use, but that was more of a siege weapon, so they had their own training versus a 3-pounder, which are faster, very mobile guns which are not as powerful, which could help in mass combat. This also led to an increased number of gun experts, well, gun experts, expert gunners within the Swedish military, which included someone like Leonard Tor Torstenson. The Swedish artillery would become famous during the 17th century, and the standardization of guns would become common in Europe in the aftermath of the Swedish involvement in the war. You'd see it a lot in, like, war movies where they say, like, 24-pounders or something like that. That was something that came out of Sweden. The last major doctrinal change that he brought was the use of combined arms. Combined arms, in simple terms, is when various parts of a military work as a cohesive whole, leading to an increased capability of an army or force. This would mean, like, artillery, infantry, cavalry, in his time period, and things like air power, tanks, and modern day, can all work together to show their strength, while their weaknesses are either covered up by other parts, and then they strengthen each other. Which means, like, the whole reason why in modern military you have infantry always around a tank is that protects the tank from getting boarded by enemy infantry, sort of thing. Or, I'll say it a little bit, but cavalry attacking the flanks as the infantry holds the front line. Combined arms tactics requires communication between the various wings of the military, which was more difficult in this time, which shows the skills of Gustavus, as he was able to coordinate these various wings of his army without the use of modern communications. An important thing he did from the start was he cross-trained his troops. Artillerymen could use guns, like standard guns, cavalry could use artillery, etc. Again, they wouldn't be as good as professional troops that specialize in that, but in cases where, say, you find an enemy artillery battery or a cavalry flanks around and finds that, they could get off the horses and fire the guns into the enemy. This meant his army was more flexible and could adapt to a battlefield more easily compared to other troops. This would come up in common ways, 
Like I mentioned earlier, for example, an infantry could hold the center of a line, which let the cavalry act as shock troops to flank the enemy, and they could destroy enemy formations, especially when they were more immobile. Cavalry at this time were used for harassing and skirmishing, not as shock troops, which made this use of them unusual. Many cavalry, especially in Europe, weren't actually given swords. They were just given guns and they'd wheel and harass the enemy, but they wouldn't be able to charge in. And on other front, artillery could move to various parts of the battlefields, and hit weak points of the enemy, and those troops could readapt and fire onto weak formations, causing a rout in the army or break a formation. As this will show in future episodes, this doctrine would be very successful against the Imperials, especially early on. Gustavus' doctrine would then become very influential, which, by the end of the war, other countries were beginning to adopt these methods, which, which a very big one, actually, you might know if anyone's into English history, is the New Model Army was actually based on Gustavus's doctrine. Modified for the English, but had a basis in the same systems. Even people like Napoleon would claim that he read up on Gustavus in his own studies of military strategy and tactics, which it is argued that Gustavus could be considered the father of modern warfare, or at least the first modern general, which once again can be debated. I heard a claim he's like the uncle of modern warfare. Some people claim Napoleon is, but this man did influence Napoleon, so... But that's all I have for the Swedish military at this time. I'm not giving you, like, numbers and, like, the size of formation because that can vary. And that's not the important part of what it is. This is more about the doctrine, not the how big a uh, regiment was or like, in specific numbers. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. It was fun to present my research in a podcast form. Next time, you move away from Sweden and onto other European conflicts that were happening outside of the Thirty Years' War, as this was a big thing. The next episode will be delayed by a week, so like I said, I won't be doing an episode the week between Christmas and New Year's. So I'll see you guys all next year. See you guys. You'll hear me next year. Whatever. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that of Patreon and to review and spread the word. And Merry Christmas, and I'll see you guys next time.